0: THE OLD PILOTS' Plain tales, BLACK BUCKS OVER THE ATLANTIC In 1690, an English ship under Captain John Strong landed on a small chain of islands in the Atlantic, explored them and gave them a name. In 1765, a naval expedition surveyed a landing site there and established a settlement called Port Egermont. Unbeknown to him, the other side of the island also held a small French settlement. They eventually discovered each other and cohabited without conflict until the Spanish forced the French to sell their rights to the island and demanded the British do the same. The British refused, so Spain invaded the islands and conquered the British settlement by force. Britain threatened war and Spain backed down. They returned the settlement back to Britain and paid compensation. In 1774, Britain evacuated its colony, since with rebellion brewing in North America, they couldn't afford to maintain a garrison there. They informed Spain that this didn't mean that they were surrendering their claim to the islands, and they reserved the right to return at a later date. Spain refused to acknowledge this claim, but in 1810 they also evacuated the islands for similar reasons, leaving them uninhabited. Around that period, various British whalers and others in the region, such as the Americans and French, started using the islands as a temporary base. However, in 1828, an Argentinian citizen called Louis Vernet set up a cattle ranching business on the islands to sell meat to the sailors. Then Vernet started confiscating American ships and their cargoes in the region on the grounds that they were violating Argentinian sovereignty by hunting without his permission. The United States government refused to recognize the Argentinian claim and accused Vernet of piracy. Eventually, in 1831, a U.S. warship was sent and U.S. Marines occupied the islands. 1832 saw Argentina send a new detachment of troops to reassert their claim, but these troops promptly mutinied, murdered their commander, raped his wife, killed several settlers and ran to the hills. The British government, disturbed by the reports of piracy and banditry in the region and that they still regarded as British territory, were mildly alarmed at Argentine claims in the region and very alarmed at US warships landing troops there. In order to reassert sovereignty, in 1833, a British warship arrived in the islands and ordered the foreign flags to be hauled down. 1850 saw Argentine quietly dropping its claim to sovereignty in return for British concessions in other areas. However, in 1941, during the rise of Nazi Germany, the pro-fascist government of Argentina formally revived its claim to the islands, which was now occupied by more than 2,000 British subjects. 1982 saw Argentina invade the islands by force and conquer them. Britain launched a successful counter-attack and took them back. The islands are, of course, the Falkland Islands. I'm sorry about the small history lesson, but it does set the scene for a fascinating conflict, of which I will cover one small part. In 1982, the Falklands was a crown colony. This was British soil, and inhabited by British citizens. The lengths that the British went to to defend this small and incredibly remote area may seem faintly ridiculous and were typified by the amazing Black Buck missions. Whilst a naval force was assembled and moved 8,000 miles, it was thought a good idea to show the intent of the British Armed Forces and to perhaps render unusable, at least for fast jet operations, the Falklands airfield at Stanley. The Royal Air Force came up with a pretty audacious plan to fly a bombing mission, a total of 6,800 nautical miles, that's 12,600 kilometres, from Wide Awake Airfield on RAF Ascension Island to Stanley and back. This was to be the longest bombing mission ever attempted, and it was going to be accomplished with aircraft not really designed for the job at the end of their lives and with some rather dubious jury-rigged modifications. Range was the key. Victor Tankers provided it. The RAF's large aircraft at the time were intended for use in Europe and over NATO waters, Air-to-air refuelling capability for these types was previously considered unnecessary. Suddenly, Hercules, Nimrod, Victor and Vulcan aircraft were expected to fly thousands of miles, loiter on mission and then return. Marshals of Cambridge, with RAF engineers, worked themselves to a standstill, fitting probes and tank systems to a variety of types, testing the new fittings almost as the paint dried. The practical result of all this frenetic activity was that, just before midnight, on the 30th of April 1982, two crews from 101 Squadron climbed into two 22-year-old bombers to deliver the first real blow in the conflict. The two Vulcans of Black Buck 1 were large four-engine Delta Wing bombers originally designed to carry Britain's nuclear deterrent as a high-level bomber. It had never before operated in anger, but that was now to change. To prepare the Vulcans for their new role, a round-the-clock engineering effort was started. Aircraft based at Waddington were completely overhauled, and refuelling probes were hunted down from as far away as Goose Bay in Labrador and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. The internal refuelling systems were largely remanufactured and the engines tuned to give maximum thrust on takeoff and the bomb bays and crew stations were converted to allow the carriage and delivery of conventional bombs. Only five days later, air-to-air refuelling practice began with the makeshift system. Borrowed Westinghouse pods from 208 Squadron's buccaneers were prepared, but how to mount them and install their systems. During its development, the Vulcan had been intended to carry underwing pylons, although never fitted. Using the original engineering drawings, R.F. Waddington engineers designed and built new pylons to mount under the Vulcan's wing on the original hardpoints. One of the pylons could carry the ECM pod, the other could carry a variety of weapons for use in the other planned missions. On the first mission, sitting in the bomb bay of each of the two Vulcans were 21 1,000-pound bombs, over 9 tonnes of high-explosive, which, combined with the fuel load, meant that both aircraft were 2.5 tonnes over their maximum weight. Because Ascension Island is relatively hot, the overloaded aircraft would have to run their four Olympus engines at 103% power to get off the ground. The scene in the dark of the softly-lit cockpits, the runway lights stretching away between the volcano and hills of ascension, the banshee howl of the Vulcan, and the slow acceleration is far better imagined than described. Only one Vulcan would fight each of the seven planned missings. The second aircraft was an airborne spare To fly this distance and to return, each mission required the support of 12 victor tankers of 55 and 57 squadrons on the outbound leg and a further two victors and a nimrod on the return leg. Denying the use of the runway to Argentine combat aircraft was the primary concern. This may sound simple, but had to be achieved without completely destroying the facility because it was also recognised that the British would need the airfield urgently on the successful completion of the land battles. The first mission was intended to cut the runway with a strike diagonally across the centre to maximise the chances of a hit. For each mission flown, three waves of aircraft would depart. Wave one would start with two Vulcans and four Victors. One of the Victors would refuel the primary Vulcan twice as it flew outbound before it returned a base leaving the Vulcan to continue. A second Victor would proceed on and fly nearly all the way to the target area which it could do because it was itself refueled by a third Victor which would then return to base. The reserve Vulcan bomber accompanied by a reserve fourth Victor tanker would return to base if the primary Vulcan continued in good order, and none of the victor refuelling planes had a significant problem. Meanwhile, a second wave of seven victors would launch to follow the Vulcan bomber southwards. The first victor of the second wave would fly to the extent of its range before being refuelled by a second victor, which would then return to ascension. That first victor would then join up with the Vulcan and refuel it twice more before it would refuel a third victor, which had made it that far because it itself had been earlier refueled by a fourth victor. Both the first victor and the fourth victor would then return to RF Ascension, but before turning back, the third victor would then refuel a fifth victor, which itself had been refueled earlier by a sixth. The fifth victor would then refuel the Vulcan twice more before it finally returned to Ascension. The Vulcan bomber, by then, would have nearly reached its target. I hope you're listening, there will be a test later. As the 13 aircraft of Black Buck 1 left Ascension Island and headed south, the requirement for an airborne spare quickly became apparent. The commander of the prime aircraft reported that the rubber seal on a side window had become loose, so he couldn't pressurise the cockpit. The reserve Vulcan stepped into his place. One of the victors also had to turn back. This was also replaced by its airborne spare, so the eleven remaining aircraft pressed on into the night. Despite their relative lack of experience with the air-to-air refuelling system, the tanking went well up until the last but one slot. The nine depleted tankers had returned to Ascension, leaving the Vulcan and two victors. The last victors were to refuel one another, but a probe was broken in turbulence. The two reversed roles, and the broken aircraft successfully returned to Ascension, leaving the Vulcan and the last victor, commanded by squadron leader Bob Tuxford. After the last refuelling, the victor turned back to Ascension, low on fuel. Tuxford had deliberately eaten into his fuel reserve and given the Vulcan more than the planned fuel amount in order to ensure the mission's success. Because of the radio silence imposed, he was unable to radio for an extra tanker rendezvous until the code word Apollo came from the Vulcan, indicating a successful strike. He continued north, knowing he couldn't make his destination. The Vulcan was now close to the Falklands, descending to low level in order to reduce the risk of detection by radar. Forty miles from the target, the Vulcan climbed to 10,000 feet for the bombing run. Navigation over this distance proved phenomenally accurate, placing the Vulcan precisely on track. Withers turned onto a heading of 235 degrees to drop the bombs across the runway, effectively cutting it, and commenced the straight run-in. The 21 bombs took five seconds to release, the drop point being about three miles from the strip. No anti-aircraft fire was aimed at the Vulcan. The raid was a complete surprise. In fact, the only operating radar detected and jammed by the crew was shut down during the attack. Of the 21 bombs, one hit the runway in its midpoint, cratering the concrete. The rest fell to one side and caused serious damage to aircraft and airfield installations and stores. After the attack, the plan called for the Vulcan to return to low level to avoid the defences, but since no reaction was detected from the Argentines, Withers immediately climbed to an economic cruising level to save fuel and sent the word Polo. Tuxford was now clear to request the tanker assistance he desperately needed to land safely. For the Vulcan, the return trip went exactly as planned. The rendezvous with the Nimrod and the additional tanker support was straightforward after the events of the long night. X-Ray Mike 607 touched down at Ascension at the end of an astonishing 15 hours and 50 minutes in the air, which included 18 air-to-air refuelling brackets. For this extraordinary record-breaking mission and their superb airmanship throughout, Flight Tenant Withers and Squadron Tuxford were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Force Cross, respectively. During the following night, six more Black Buck missions were attempted. Some were bombing attacks and others fired AGM-45 Alpha Shrike anti-radar missiles. Two were called off for weather or unserviceability, but the remaining aircraft completed attacks that damaged fire control radars, a Skyguard fire control system, and made further damage to the runway. Black Buck 6 damaged its in-flight refuelling probe and had no option but to divert to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, where it was interned for some nine days before being released. The aircraft landed at Rio with zero fuel registering on the gauges. The remaining Shrike missile on the Vulcan's pylon was not returned with the aircraft and crew. Whether or not one agrees with the history of this little group of islands, or the recent and not-so-recent claims to their ownership, one can surely admire the tenacity, ingenuity and bravery of those involved with the remarkable Black Buck flights. To tackle such a mission with these elderly aircraft required a level of determination not every country would be willing to give. Indeed, the toll they took on the Victor tankers forced their early retirement from service and subsequent replacement by modified tanking Vulcan K2s. These missions are now part of the archives of the Royal Air Force, and they will forever be part of its rich history. My thanks to Jim Howard for suggesting the subject for this plane tales.